very genuine sharing, Shifu. Um, it's always inspiring to hear uh, stories of people who've, um, who are on that journey of, uh, of, of um, really seeking after God. And so it's, uh, it's really inspiring to hear your story. Um, before we get into uh, this morning's uh, sermon, I just invite you to join me for one more word of prayer. Father God, we want to come before you this Sabbath. We thank you for an opportunity to come before you, to worship together, uh, to hear your word. And I just want to pray that um, you would bless this time, you would speak to our hearts, um, and that you would, um, even as I stand up here, instruct me on on um, what to share. As Father, I don't know what um, everyone has gone through this week, and ultimately, you know, your spirit knows, and so we just want to pray that you administer to hearts today. We pray in your name. Amen. So Jinha and I have been going through a series called No More Fear, and uh, this week we are covering No More Fear of Witnessing. And I think witnessing is always a bit of an um, interesting topic because it kind of implies um, either giving Bible studies or preaching sermons or going out on the streets of uh, Melbourne and preaching the gospel. I don't know if you've come across the uh, street preachers on Swanston Street or uh, even on Burke Street. There are some people from our church that pass out literature as well. Um, it's always a bit of a, a daunting task, if you will, a daunting commission, a daunting command. And so today we're going to be talking about no more fear of witnessing when I was 19, I was a Bible worker um, working in Lower East Side, Manhattan. And New York is a very unique place because it's so highly concentrated with tons and tons of people. I mean, you can sit on one street and look down and you cannot see the end of the buildings. That's how many, that's how congested it is. When they, when they call cities cement jungles, you really get that feeling when you're in Manhattan. Well, one Saturday, I was in Central Park, and I kind of thought, oh, I just kind of want to take it easy. I'm gonna, this is a famous park. I'm just kind of take my time and stroll through the park. And as I was walking down the park, I hear this preacher, and he is calling everyone to repentance. And I look around, and I'm the only person there, so I just assumed he was talking to me. <laughs> and so I kind of turned around, and you know, I was a, a bit of a zealous missionary, so I thought, oh, maybe this would be a good opportunity to connect with somebody. And so he's preaching away, telling me to repent, and so I sat in front of him, and I had a Bible on me, and I pulled out my Bible. And when he said, repent, I said, amen. And then he promptly picked up his soapbox and walked away. <laughs> now, I learned something about witnessing from this experience. As Christians, witnessing tends to prioritize us. It prioritizes our truth. And that street preacher, he was more interested in my guilt, in my behavior, more than he was interested in me. And I thought, oh, maybe as a fellow believer in Christ, he'll kind of strike up a conversation. But he was like, nope, heading away. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I don't know why he walked away. I didn't chase after him. <laughs> But, yeah, witnessing tends to prioritize us as Christians and as a church. It prioritizes our truth. If they agree with our truth, then great. They can join our church. And if they don't agree with our church, well, then it must mean that the Spirit of God is not working in them and they are not responding to the promptings of the Spirit of God. And so hope that they can be open one day and we kind of tend to let them go on their way. So because witnessing tends to prioritize us and what we want— Oftentimes, witnessing can be seen as abrasive. Um, 
we generally feel apprehension about witnessing because we don't want to bother people who may not believe what we believe. And so we tend to shy away from conflict. But we also shy away from the call to share Jesus. So today, instead of talking about witnessing, I want to talk about ministry. Those two words have a lot of overlap in meaning. But ministry prioritizes the person we are reaching in a way where the recipient of our ministry actually knows we care about them and we prioritize them regardless of how they respond to our witness. So ministry does not chase people away from us because of our beliefs. I want to start today by sharing a quote here. It's from the book Ministry of Healing, page 143. And I think this is one of the greatest quotes on what it means to be an effective minister. The quote says, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. So notice what leads to true success when it comes to reaching people. Jesus first spends time with people prioritizing them. Jesus was interested in making friends before he was interested in making disciples. And I think that's a really great challenge for the church because we're more interested in making disciples. Next, it says, Jesus ministers to their needs, winning their confidence. I love this line because helping somebody takes a moment. Winning somebody's confidence takes a lifetime. That word confidence means people actually trust you. You know, there are a lot of people that want to help me, but they have their own agendas. They're called salespeople. I get phone calls all the time. Let me help you with your utility bill. Okay. <laughs> like immediately, red flag, red flag. I'm, I'm really busy. I'm sorry. I don't know how you got my phone number. Bye. <laughs> it takes a moment to help somebody. It takes a lifetime to win somebody's confidence. There's a reason why Jesus lived with humanity for 33 and a half years before he dies for humanity. Then he bids them follow me. Notice the preaching or witnessing happens at the end of the quote after the relationship and trust have been established, not the beginning. If we were to follow this model of ministry, I think it would eliminate the majority of negativity that is associated with witnessing. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the Bible ends with this, well, this isn't the very last quote, but in closing, this is kind of like a conclusion summary of Scripture. It says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. And what I want to highlight here is oftentimes when we quote this, we often think it says, And let him who hears come. But it says, Let the person who hears the gospel who experiences the gospel, then repeat that invitation. They're supposed to say to other people, hey, experience what I've experienced. See, everybody is called to be a minister. Not everybody may have the confidence to get up front and preach a sermon. I, I say confidence, maybe it's arrogance. I don't know which word it is. Um, 
But not everybody is called to get up front and preach a sermon or give a Bible study. But everybody is called to minister. You know, we live in the most livable city in the world. We have reasonably economic stability here in Melbourne. Universal health care, which coming from an American, like it's one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen. Um, we have Centrelink. Hex for those who want to attend uni. What can we as a church possibly offer to this city? Jinha preached a sermon on loneliness a couple weeks ago, and she cited some statistics that I thought bears repeating. There was a survey that was produced by Lifeline here in Australia, and in that survey, it stated that 60% of Australians feel lonely. More than 31% of people said they felt more lonely when using social media, which is kind of ironic. Out of 3,100 responses, almost 34% of people said they didn't have anyone to confide in when they felt alone. 82.5% of people that took the survey said loneliness is on the rise. And it's really interesting. Out of that 82.5%, over half of them said, oh, over half of them are in relationships. They are married to other people. They have families. And they were saying, I too am lonely. And it's interesting. We look around in the room, in the city, in the lives of our friends and family, and we kind of think, well, you have everything put together, so you must be okay. And it's so interesting because as soon as you send out a survey and ask people questions, you find out just how many people are craving for some genuine community. And so here's a question. What can we as a church community, as a body of believers, offer to this city? And I would state genuine, genuine community because it's one of humanity's greatest needs. This City is rich in resource and population, but poor in community and connectedness. Paul was a minister to a church in Corinth, and I'm going to invite you to take your white Bibles, or if you've got your Bibles on your phone, I'll invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you've got your white Bibles, it's going to be page 922, page 922. Corinth was an interesting place because it was a secular, affluent city. There was a church right in that place, and Paul writes these letters to the church of Corinth. And you really get a sense of some of the things that Paul encountered in this city. And when he writes these letters, he's specifically addressing issues in the church. But I think if you see what the problems in the church are, they're an indicator of what the city was like. So in First Corinthians, in First and Second Corinthians, uh, Paul highlights a couple of the problems. Um, there were issues of uh, men sleeping with their stepmothers. People were drunk at the Lord's Supper. Church members were suing each other. As a whole, they had little to no regard for one another. And these are the problems inside of the church. So imagine what the city was like outside of the church. So the question is this. How was Paul going to minister to this secular city? How was he going to witness and draw people to the gospel? In this book, Paul's methods are not always mentioned, but his mindset or his worldview by which he approaches ministry is clearly stated. And I want to highlight this principle. 
in these two letters, he refers to this mindset of prioritizing others over himself. He refers to this mindset as dying to self or suffering and living for others. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a great example of how Paul lives this out in his ministry. And so if you've got your white Bibles or your, yeah, these Bibles, page 922, that... Um, each section is kind of, it has its own title, and notice the title, it says, Paul gives up his rights. So in this chapter, people have been challenging Paul's authority, and he responds by discussing his personal rights to take financial provision for himself in the preaching of the gospel as apostle to the church. So basically, Paul's saying, I deserve to be paid by the church. But notice what's happening in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? So the church in Corinth acknowledged Peter and the other apostles. They welcomed Peter and apparently they welcomed his wife as well. They housed, they fed they paid for Peter's expenses because of his ministry and his position. But when Paul comes along, they ask this question, who are you? Why do you deserve payment? And this is a frustrating thing because Paul is an apostle. He deserves payment. And most importantly, it's because he's actually benefiting the church. So notice verse 1. Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with our own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Paul continues his argument, verses 7. He writes, What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Skipping down to verse 11, since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you look at Paul's character in the New Testament, you find Paul is not this self-absorbed slacker who loves money and he's not just trying to take advantage of the church. He is deeply invested in the church and its mission. He's hardworking He's incredibly generous. If anyone is entitled to help from the church, it's Paul. Paul is an apostle. He's a worker, and yet people don't want to pay him. And so here's the question. What is he going to do? If you are in this situation, if your livelihood is dependent upon the generosity of the church, and they decide, you know what? We just don't really want to pay you. How would you respond in this situation? Notice verse 12. Paul says, If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Paul decides, I will not take payment. He uses an interesting word. That English word, obstacle, is translated from a Greek word. It's called ekope. 
And that word is used in non-biblical literature to describe barriers that armies built or trenches that they dug to provide impediments to the enemy. So back in the day, the Roman, soul, the Roman army was really well known for these trenches. And what they would do is they would build these trenches between themselves and the enemy. They would take the dirt that was used from the trenches and build this wall and then put shields and they would put um, um, uh, beams of timber to kind of create these mobile fortresses. And so if at night they were tired and they needed to sleep, at least there was a barrier between them and the enemy. So Paul uses this word to communicate his right to take payment for his services might hinder those who he's trying to reach. He wants the message of the gospel to really connect with the people. But some people he knows they're going to be turned off. They're going to be turned off if he takes payment. And so he decides, I'm going to let go of my right to take payment. See, Paul recognizes this very, very important principle. There is a challenge of reaching out to people. See, there's this perception that sometimes we're seeking our own comfort, we're seeking our own goodness when we are reaching out. And so Paul lets go of this right to financial support and comfort, and he suffers the burden of supporting himself through ministry. Not only does Paul act this way in this circumstance, but throughout his ministry. In John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus gives this important principle. He says, if a seed falls into the ground and lives, it serves only itself. But if a seed falls into the ground and dies, it becomes fruitful for others. See, the more Paul suffered, the more the church prospered. The more he died, the stronger the church lived. The more he was deaf to the cries of his own flesh, the more they could hear the life-giving words. When our religion is about giving, when our faith becomes other-centered, it takes away the perception that we have an agenda. This is the gospel that God gave Jesus for the sake of humanity. And it's in contemplation of that goodness that we are drawn to God. Jinha mentioned that there was a pastor, a Korean pastor, who passed away a couple weeks ago. His name was Brian Jae. And this one individual was responsible for the planting of every single Korean church in Australia. Think about that for a moment. Uh, every single Korean Adventist church in Australia. So here's this one guy who finishes uni, and he talks to his family, and he says, Hey, we live in Korea right now. There's job security. I can provide for you. But what do you think of us moving to Australia and starting a Korean congregation in a foreign country where we don't speak their language? And the family is kind of like, okay, well, we support you, so let's go. So they pack their bags, hop on the plane, fly to Australia, and he comes to the conference and he says, hey, I want to start a Korean church. Um, how do you feel about supporting the Korean demographic, the Korean community? And the conference says, well, we're not really sure about this, so we can't really support you. And so what do he, him and his family do? They decide, look, this is something that God wants us to do. Let's just do this. And so they decide to support themselves, and he just kind of puts his shoulder to the um, plow, and he just starts working away. You fast forward 
25 odd years later, and there are now five Korean congregations in Australia, all because of this one family. And you know, it took him like 13 years of supporting himself before he was able to get support from the conference. Like, it's just an incredible, incredible story for me. And you can hear my accent. It's very Western. <laughs> it's very American. I-, I was born in America, and even though I look Asian, culturally, I, I really don't identify with Korea except for the World Cup. So when it's the World Cup, I'm Korean for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> but I'm American. I'm, I'm Western. But hearing this guy's story, I just... It, I couldn't help but be drawn to have this burden of, you know what? Here's this one guy, and now the Korean community is kind of like lost this um, pioneer of, of ministry. And I couldn't help but think, I wonder if there's something that I can do for the different Korean churches. Now, maybe not in a pastoral capacity, but I wonder if there's something that I can do. And for some reason, this guy's life and his suffering and the hard work that he put into drew me to want to do something. And that's exactly the point. As we encounter people and as we give and give and give and prioritize the needs of people, it draws people to then ask that question, why are you giving so much? What is it that motivates you? And if you believe in God so much, I wonder if there's something more to that. Our example of giving becomes a compelling reason to believe. But do you know, our example of giving is also compelling proof that we do believe. You see, the gospel is about God giving. And as recipients, we are to pass that gift along. See, this sermon is not supposed to guilt trip you into giving more. I hope it compels you to seek that great gift and goodness of God. Think about how good God has been to you. He gives eternal life. He gives the sense of his presence in your life when you're seeking comfort. His providence guides and directs circumstances in your life. And there are moments where you just realize something outside of yourself organized an event in your life. And you realize, man, that was God. Think about your job. The place that you live your family, the blessings of God in your life, the mercy that God has shown you in your life, time and time again, messing up, and yet God is there. Remembering how good God has been to you, uh, remember how good God has been to you, and then remember what it costs to get you there. God risked the most valuable thing he had, and that's Jesus for our sake. Jesus lived suffered, and then died on the cross. Salvation and the gift of life is not something that God gives on his free time. It costs him something. And my point is this. Ministry is never convenient. It's not something that you have time for. It's something that you make time for. And that's because salvation is that good and that valuable. If you find it hard to give, if giving is difficult, then my suggestion is learn to receive. The gift is that good. It will compel you to give. I also suggest give anyway, because there's a, there's a hidden blessing in giving. So sometimes it's like, oh, I don't want to do this. But if you just force yourself to do it, you'd be amazed at what happens.
I think there's a difficult challenge here, and that's what if you are someone who already gives? What if you have given a lot in your life and it's led to burnout? And the question is, if you keep giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, especially in an environment that is unhealthy and maybe even abusive, how do you keep giving? Jesus gave his life, but it led to resurrection. And I think there's a difference between giving when God wants you to give versus giving that is motivated by different, um, motivated by something else. The self-motivated, human-motivated ambition, the Bible says, leads to death. But God-given ambition leads to life and resurrection. There's a passage here in Philippians chapter 3 that I'd like to go over with you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Philippians is also in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3, page 948. And we're going to start in verse 7. And I'm just going to read from verses 7 to 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. The text says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and the experience and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Now, there are a lot of different concepts in this passage, but what I want to highlight here is Paul is saying he had something to lose. And by following God, it required him to deny himself, and he felt like it was death. I don't know if you've ever felt like you had to do something, and it was so difficult you just felt like you were dying. I've never experienced that, but I, I, sat next to my, I stood next to my wife as she was giving children, and that was probably... I would probably say that's one of the most difficult physical things that a human being has to go through is give birth to a child. And I remember standing there watching my wife and she's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, she's just in a lot of pain. And there's something about that experience where we're not drawn to that by saying, yes, please, I'll take five of those. And yet here's Paul saying, I want to go through that experience of death but because on the other side of that death, there's resurrection and there's life. There's a knowledge of Christ that I could not experience had I not gone through that difficulty. And so when Jesus calls us or commands us to go and reach out and minister to people's needs, the point is that it requires a degree of self-denial. And there are going to be moments where um, it's difficult, and that's the reality of it. But the point is, on the other side of that experience, there's this, I would say, a supernatural promise where God says, you will encounter something that you would not have encountered unless you go through that. And you will experience resurrection. You will experience life. You see, 
Burnout leads to death. Resurrection, that self-denial that God calls us to, leads to life. In one, God calls us to self-denial. In the other, there are times where it's self-inflicted or influenced by people. When God calls us to deny ourselves, he takes the responsibility of taking care of the results. When it is our own ambition, we bear that burden. When it comes to that death that leads to life, it is driven by a sense of faith. It's driven by a sense of love. It's driven by the sense of God. This is something that you want me to do. The kind of burnout that leads to death is driven by guilt, pride, or the sake of status. There have been so many times as a pastor where I've kind of asked myself the question, at the end of the day, is this all, like, am I doing the right thing here? Because there are times where I just feel um, I'm so unsure that, uh, of what I'm doing. But there are time and time, again, time and time again, there have been moments where God gives me that experience of resurrection. He gives me that experience of life. And retrospectively, I look back and I realize this is an incredible, incredible thing that I've been able to experience and encounter. I think the greatest example of that would be my own relationship to every one of you. And what I mean by that is, if we didn't start this church, I wouldn't know you. If we didn't go through the difficulty and the heartache and the frustrations that come about from planting a church, we wouldn't have the benefit and the joy and the blessing of having you in our lives. And the point is, that relationship is much more valuable than the difficulty that we face at the beginning of that ministry. And so in eternity, Jesus, Jesus is going to look out over humanity that is saved and realized it was worth it because now I have you in my life forever. There's something so incredibly powerful about the relationships that we build as a result of the ministry that we give. So as you learn to give, as you learn to minister, it's my prayer that you would experience that life-giving power, that life-giving promise that is offered to us. May God bless you. Now,